The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Uh, it is really good to be with you. Good morning. Um, it's good to be in a church that worships, uh, that allows children to run, like John said. I love that. Um, the days of Elijah reminded me of some camp days of riding on the sun. Um, so it was fun to sing that a cappella with you this morning. Um, it really is a joy to be with you. Um, especially with you, John, and, and Kelly, wherever you are. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm, I'm on staff with Hockey Ministries International as a missionary to the hockey world, um, primarily focused on our work at the youth level of hockey. And so John and Kelly were pivotal um, in helping us get our first Oklahoma City camp going 12 years ago. We finished this summer our 12th summer of camps um, here in Oklahoma City. We have the biggest camp in America. We have 14 American camps as a ministry, and the biggest one is here in Oklahoma City. We had 104 campers. Um, about 30 of those kids made a decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior during that week, so it's super fun. Um, and as a ministry, we also do chapel programs. Um, a chapel is just a a 15-minute to 30-minute look at God's Word um, with hockey players either after a practice or before a game. Um, we do that at the NHL level, the NCAA level, major junior in Canada, minor professional, a little bit overseas in Europe. Um, but my heart when I came on staff and what I think God laid on my heart was to start doing that at the youth level. And so again, John and Kelly were pivotal in getting that going with their son's team. And now um, in Oklahoma City, all Oklahoma City hockey players have access to a chapel. Our three college teams, maybe you didn't even know there's hockey in Oklahoma City. Our three college teams um, have access to chapel. Our national championship junior team, which is 17 to 20 year old kids, have chapel. We had 30 chapels with them this year, which is really awesome. Um, and then all of our youth players, whether they play travel and play in a league in Dallas or they just play locally here as a house um, as a house team, they all have access to chapel, oftentimes weekly, um, sometimes bi-weekly depending on the schedule. But uh, And God's doing a new thing. Um, a new, I read that on your wall. There's a new thing springing up and, and he's started to expand that outside of Oklahoma City. So um, Prosper Texas has a couple teams doing chapels now as well. Fergus Falls, Minnesota has eight teams. Last year, Farmington, probably don't know where Farmington is, or Lakeville, Minnesota. Um, they started three new teams each. Um, there's interest in other places in Minnesota and Chicago and Montana, and God's doing a neat work. What started here in Oklahoma City, John, and thank you so much for that, is starting to grow. Um, we have a long way to go. There's almost 800,000 youth hockey players in North America, um, so we have a lot of work to do. Um, our vision is to reach every player in every arena everywhere with a message of hope found in Christ, but I'm so thankful that it started here. Um, and I'm excited for what's ahead. Um, and as I understand, you guys have been focusing on unity. Um, and when John asked me to speak, um, I honestly was hesitant, um, a little scared, a little anxious. Um, it's been a process. The process of preparation has been a little bit of a roller coaster from excited for what I think God's laid on my heart to share to really nervous and questioning whether I'm going to be heretical. So if I'm heretical this morning, please forgive me. Um, I'm just a dumb hockey player who simply tries to help other dumb hockey players know Jesus and follow him. Um, preaching in church is a little bit of a daunting task, but I'm, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, for that reason, I cherish Paul's words. I'll start with this. Um, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, to the Corinthians, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. And so I'm sorry I identify with Paul. Um, there won't be eloquent words this morning. Um, but I hope that what the rest of Paul says here is true. 
Um, he goes on to say, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And that's my hope um, today. My hope is that God is glorified this morning. I hope the Holy Spirit works in you, um, not for my pride, but for God's glory, um, for your encouragement, and hopefully for your transformation. I hope that if you're following Jesus, that you're challenged and encouraged to action today. Um, If you're not following Jesus yet, um, we're pumped that you're here. Um, you are dearly loved, and I hope that the Holy Spirit will show you clearly who Jesus is. Um, they'll tug on your heart to investigate why you wouldn't repent and turn from your sin and turn back to him. There isn't a better decision you can make um, in your entire life. Um, the focus, as John said this morning, will be unity in mission. And as this topic's been on my mind and heart um, the last couple of weeks I've been, as I've been preparing, I found myself discouraged at times thinking about this topic. Um, In principle, unity is awesome. And the mission that we're on is incredible. And so unity and mission should be automatic. But in practice, it can be just plain ugly at times. Um, I'm worried that I'm maybe going to leave you more tension-filled, maybe even more discouraged as you leave today than when you entered. Um, And maybe that's God's will and plan. Um, But on that note, let's get this over with. So um, let me begin by encouraging you. Uh, The first time I recall experiencing uh, tension in my faith was during my freshman year in college. And as John said, I went to a really liberal university. Um, And I remember an atheist classmate approaching me with a book um, that was apparently full of all the contradictions in the Bible. Ironically, as I remember, it was bigger than the Bible itself. Um, So there's a problem right off the bat. But um, I was scared at first to even engage. It was the first time I had heard the idea of the possibility of that. And um, but I look back at those fears and those four years in those environments as, as a great opportunity for me to grow and dig into my faith and really wrestle with the things that create temp- tension in Scripture. And that kind of tension is all over Scripture. Jesus tells us, do not worry about your clothes or your food. And in fact, in John 14, he says, unless you give up all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. Like, Really? I, like, I have four kids and a wife. I need shelter. It rained last night. I need food to feed. Give up all of our possessions. What is, he, what is the tension he's creating there? What does he really mean? And if you go a little earlier in Luke 14, he says, unless you hate your father and mother and your wife and kids, you cannot be my disciple. What about the fifth commandment where I'm to honor my father and mother and God's great commandments in Ephesians 5 through Paul that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church? How do we reconcile these tensions of hating and loving somehow as, as God has put in Scripture? Um, and, and John 3, famously, you know that God so loved the world that he gave Jesus and he is patient not wanting anyone to perish He wants everyone to come to repentance, and this is not by works. It's not even by our doing. It's by grace and faith, and yet somehow the road to eternal life is still narrow. Somehow we must receive the work of Christ to be saved, and yet God chose us and elected us from before the beginning of the world, before the creation of the world. Somehow he reserves the right to create objects of wrath for his purposes while also not wanting anyone to perish. I'm a black and white guy. Like, I want things clear and plain and simple, clean cut. I'm okay if they're difficult to apply, but I want it clear. Um, And these tensions are not. 
And I wonder if God intended this tension to keep us from taking the commandment and forgetting the command giver and the relationship that he desires to have with us. And so may we always let tension draw us to our Father and to his Holy Spirit for wisdom and guidance into truth. And as we apply to t- attempt these, uh, try to a- apply these challenging truths to our lives, may we be drawn to our Father. May we learn to welcome and embrace and wrestle with tension and, and by them press into our Father and grow closer to him. Unfortunately, this morning, I think we may be faced with another one. Uh, and again, I'm afraid that I may just highlight the tension for you. And I hope that the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth as you wrestle with it. I believe that unity and mission might be one of these tensions. Um, as followers of Jesus in the global sense, we claim to worship one God, follow one Lord and Savior, Jesus, and to be filled by one Holy Spirit. And yet by my best research, there are between three and seven primary Christian denominations. We can't even agree on the number. And each of them are seemingly uh, divided with countless subdivisions within them. Some think as few as 188 denominations. Others think as many as 45,000 denominations within the Christian faith. Like what division we have just in those numbers. Um, My pastor noted this, that there are church fights over the length of the preaching pastor's beard, not the worship pastor. Over probably likely after today that the guest speaker should be clean shaven and probably clean up a little bit better. Um, Arguments over the carpet color, arguments over whether crayon grape juice is sufficient in the communion or does it need to be pure grape juice? Are deviled eggs, should they be allowed at the church potluck dinner? Um, Arguments over the style and the length of the worship service. And then maybe some more serious ones like women in leadership or roles within the church. What is the definition of marriage? What is the definition of gender in our culture today? Um, Personally, I'm on mission, as I said, to a very small corner of the kingdom, the hockey world, and yet you might be surprised to know that we're not the only organization that's serving that area of the kingdom. Um, And not surprisingly at all, there's tension between the organizations that serve the hockey world and even tension and division within those organizations. Just a week ago, I was in northern Minnesota running our camp there and our staff couldn't survive five days without some significant conflict and tension. And I heard a stat recently that as many as 30,000 Protestant churches are in serious conflict at any given time. And sadly, these conflicts sometimes aren't resolved. They lead to the division of churches, the splitting of churches, and complete division. And I wonder if this is what Jesus was thinking when he prayed in John 17, the night he was later arrested and then crucified the next day. He begins by praying for his followers' safety in the world, not that they'd be removed from the world, but they would stay safe in the world so that they could be united. He prays that they would experience his complete joy and that they would be sanctified by the truth that they would become more and more like Jesus, the very vision of the Springs Church. I read your vision statement, and I love it. We are being transformed into the image of Christ so that many will find the way to God. I love this. And then Jesus continues in verses 20 to 23, and he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as, I, as you have loved me. Jesus prayed here for all believers of all time that we may be one. 
The same way that the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. Complete unity. And why? So that the world may believe that he came from the Father. Our mission to help the world know Christ. And it's interesting to note in this prayer that he didn't pray that the world would believe he is from the Father because of his amazing teaching that always left the crowds astonished by his authority. And he didn't pray that the world would know that he was from the Father because of his countless amazing, incredible miracles. And he didn't pray that the world would know that he is from the Father because he fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. He simply prayed that the world would believe he is from the Father because of our unity. Our unity is essentially vital for the world to know Jesus, and yet we fight over carpet color and beard length and style of worship, and we're divided into thousands of denominations, and we're identified by our differences. And if I'm on the outside and I don't know Christ and I'm honest, this doesn't draw me to him. Like, how can these people who all claim to follow Jesus as the Savior and Lord of all be so divided? May we let Jesus' words in John 17 wash over us anew and penetrate our hearts. And this division is not new. If we go back to Acts 9, we pick up the early church story and great persecution is broken out against the church after Stephen's stoning. Um, And it's actually caused the spread of the kingdom as the believers were fleeing. They shared the good news where they went, which is really awesome. Um, In their persecution, they were still faithful And Saul becomes this central figure uh, in this persecution. He's approving of the death of Christians, and he's on mission to arrest further Christians. Um, And as you know, Saul's name changes to Paul, and he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. On the road to arrest more Christians, he meets Jesus, and he's radically changed. And he immediately begins preaching, and he calls the people to repent, and he preaches that Jesus is the Son of God, and then he escapes a death, a death plot on his life, and he returns to Jerusalem, where the disciples and the apostles are, and the disciples won't meet with him, because they don't trust him, they know his story, they know who he was when he left, they won't meet, him, meet with him, and Paul needs unity with Barnabas. He needs Barnabas to vouch for him to even be able to meet with the apostles, And yet, because of this unity and because Barnabas vouches for him, the church experiences peace, it's strengthened, and it increases in number. And this unity instigates this, I think. And Paul and Barnabas go on to share incredible ministry and experiences together. They go on the first recorded missionary journey. They spend a year in Antioch, and they reach Jews and Greeks alike. They blind a false prophet magician that ultimately leads to a Roman proconsul coming to faith. Um, They courageously preach in the face of Jewish resistance. They face near-death situations, and and Paul is stoned at one point. They perform signs and miracles in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and other cities, and they continue to open the door for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. They defend the Gentiles against the legalism of circumcision, and then in Acts 15, they separate. Luke writes it this way. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. I have a friend in ministry. I mean, he's actually a mentor to me. I look up to him as a father figure, maybe not to the level of experience that Paul and Barnabas had. 
Um, but he has a Paul-like story where he took a 180 from adultery and drunkenness and came back to Jesus and for 43 years has been on mission, allowing God to humbly use his story. Uh, and, and I think literally thousands of hockey players' lives and countless marriages have been impacted by him. And I've had the privilege of doing mission and being on mission with him for 20, over 20 years. And I cannot imagine ever being divided to the point of separation with him. And yet Paul and Barnabas with so many more and greater experiences together on mission, both godly men, we know Paul, but Barnabas is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith in Acts 11. They're two men that still want to be on mission for Christ. And after having shared all that together, they are divided over another man that actually wants to go with them. Like this creates a tension in me. I don't know whether to read this as descriptive or prescriptive, it's in the Bible, it's there, so we're to read it. Uh, and if you don't know prescriptive or descriptive, I'll give you an example. David's described as a man after God's own heart, but then he's also, as we know, an adulterous murderer. God doesn't tell us and he's, adul- he's an adulterous murderer to show us how a man after God's own heart should live. It's not prescriptive for us. It's simply describing the fallenness of humanity in David. And so I don't know whether Paul or Barnabas was wrong in this, how wrong John Mark was to have left them, or is this just a product of fallen humanity? Or is it prescriptive? Is God telling us that the pursuit of unity and mission will sometimes still have division? This is the same Paul who on one hand, he fights on several occasions to defend the Gentiles from the legalism of of hard topics like circumcision, but then later requires Timothy to be circumcised for the sake of the mission. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 to not associate or even eat with believers who are sexually immoral. I understand that one. Greedy, uh, idolatrous, verbally abusive, drunkards, or swindlers. Paul is clearly okay with division at times. But on the other hand, in Philippians 1, he seems to nonchalantly allow some believers to share the gospel from a heart of envy and rivalry with the purpose of harming Paul. He contends that at least in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. So Paul is clearly okay at times with extending grace on things that are clearly wrong, but apparently not for John Mark. On this great mission of reaching the lost for the kingdom, Paul seems to at times take a stand for some things to the point of division, while at other times letting things go. And I won't focus too much on Jesus, but he did pray for our unity. He also at one point said he did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword and he speaks about families. And I've experienced that amongst believers. And in John 6, his teaching causes many of his disciples to quit following him. I'll leave you with the wrestling of this tension, whether to pursue unity at all costs or to stand strong on some issues to the point of division. I'll let you wrestle with which of these topics might be worth standing for to the point of division. I believe there are some. But let's move on to how we each personally can pursue unity on this mission. What's our role in pursuing unity? I think there's a couple vital first steps. To pursue unity in mission, unity must happen within me first. In Galatians 5, Paul highlights our internal battle between flesh and the Holy Spirit, and he describes the fruit of each of them, concluding that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and instead they live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. There is a battle inside of us to keep us from following the Holy Spirit within each of us that will allow us to be united with one another. And though Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are new creations, the old is gone, the new has come, 
And in Romans 6, that we have been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection so that our old man was crucified with him and we are no longer enslaved to sin, but we might live a new life. And in Galatians 2.20, he says that he himself was crucified with Christ, that he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. It's the same Paul that as we read for the verse of the day, um, in Romans 7, he says that he still battles sin in his flesh, though he's been crucified with Christ, and a flesh that draws him to be a slave to sin. We must win the internal battle by surrendering to the Holy Spirit over our flesh daily and even moment by moment. We must unite our new identity with who we are following for every decision in life. We must be united within, one with Christ as he prayed for us in John 17. Secondly, to pursue unity and mission, we must be humble. There may not be a better example of this than John the Baptist. If anyone other than Jesus had a reason for pride, it was John. He was a product of a miraculous birth in Elizabeth's barrenness that was proclaimed by an angel. He was cousins with Jesus. That's pretty cool. Um, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. He was born into a mission to prepare the way for Jesus and make the people ready, going forth in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He was baptizing people with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was prophesied about in the Old Testament at least three times. He was proclaimed by Jesus to be the greatest man who ever lived. And he was beloved by his faithful followers. And yet instead of protecting himself and his pride and his own following and panicking like his followers did when everybody was leaving him to go to Jesus, he shows his incredible humi humility and states his powerful goal on mission for the kingdom that I think we each need to adopt as we pursue unity. Simply, he says that he, Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. John humbly realizes that his mission was not his own elevation or his own following, but solely about the elevation of Christ, the elevation of Jesus at the cost of his own lessening. May we be humble like John on mission. Thirdly, to pursue unity in mission, we must diligently remember the mission. Just as John remembered the mission was not about his own elevating or his own following, we must remember the mission is not even to build and increase the Springs Church. It's not about the elevation of Hockey Ministries International. How easily I forget this. It's not about the lifting of our own personal names and positions and titles. It's not even the defense and the increase of a particular denomination. The mission is about the elevation of Christ alone. And we must decrease in the process. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul describes that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. That just as we have been reconciled to God through Christ, that he has been made sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God, we are on mission to implore others to know that they can be reconciled the same way to God and not have their sins counted against them. In Matthew 28, Jesus simply summarizes the mission to go and make disciples of all nations. May we all be so vigilantly and solely focused on elevating Jesus and helping others know him and follow him that unity is the only option. To pursue unity and mission, we must know our real enemy. We have a flesh that continually pulls us internally away from that mission and away from following the Holy Spirit. We live in a world that does the same thing from the outside. But as conflict arises amongst believers, may we always remember who Paul tells us a true enemy is. In Ephesians 6, he clearly describes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are not in conflict with fellow believers. 
but with an enemy who is a liar, who seeks to steal from us and destroy us, and he divides as he goes. May another believer never be our enemy. Fifthly, to pursue unity and mission, we must stand for truth and extend grace on everything else. Jesus was full of grace and truth, and as we're conformed into his image, may we be full of the same two things. And in principle, to me, this is simple. When the Bible speaks on a topic, let's stand strong. And where the Bible is silent on a topic, extend grace for the sake of unity. But I understand that in practice, this is challenging. As some feel the Bible is silent on some issues where others feel it speaks. But may God's word be our foundation for truth as we, as we wrestle with these things. And lastly, to pursue unity and mission, we must focus on our role. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes believers as parts of a body, united and gifted by one and the same Holy Spirit. And he specifically addresses two body part unity problems. Parts that think they are not important enough to be a part of the body because they're not like some other parts that seem to be better. And then parts that think they're so important that they don't need the other parts. A friend of mine resolves this issue with a simple illustration. He likes to call himself the sphincter. No matter how insignificant the sphincter thinks he is compared to the face, nor how unimportant the face thinks the sphincter is, if the sphincter isn't working, the face ain't happy. <laughs> May we each gratefully embrace the role that the Holy Spirit has entrusted to us, passionately excelling at it for the benefit of the whole body. And in conclusion, pursuing unity in mission is not an easy task. It will require our full surrender to the Holy Spirit, a relentless lessening of ourselves in the elevation of Jesus alone, a diligent focus on the real mission, taking a stand and against our real enemy, and graciously and gratefully and passionately accepting our role. And it may at times even cause division, but it's a worthwhile pursuit. The world will know Jesus because of our unity. Let's pray. And before I pray, if you're a believer here today, um, you are called to complete unity with other believers, and you're invited on this great mission together. Um, I hope something stood out to you, to, to you today to either encourage you in an action step towards greater unity or become more focused on the mission. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, I hope that you see Jesus in our unity. Um, I challenge you not to leave today without talking to me or a church leader um, about what it means to follow Jesus. There isn't a more important decision you can make in your life. Um, Father, thanks so much um, for the prayer of Christ over us that we would be united with one another and with him so we can be united with you. Um, as we go on mission, help us to remember this unity. Help us to remember that the mission is elevating you and helping other people know you and follow you and obey you. Um, help us not to get sidetracked by our own little part missions in the middle of that. Help us to serve you. Um, I pray that you give us the courage to stand with grace on things that we know are truth. Um, help us to extend grace on other issues and, and, and strive towards unity. Um, we just are grateful that, that there are tension and that that tension can draw us to you, that your ways are above us. You are higher than us. We're so thankful that you are. Um, help us let our tension draw us to you. We're so grateful that you love us. Help us to go forward um, on mission in unity. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.